This is Decolonise, a podcast about black sovereignty. It's a space for us to listen up to our mob, our First Nations voices across our countries. What is black sovereignty? What does it look like, feel like? What would it mean for this to be honoured as leadership and how do we do it? Our lands everywhere are hurting and we are being called on urgently to ignite this healing process. Our lands need to be well for our people to be well. Our ancestors are waking us up and we are responding. Decolonise is about the well-being of everyone. Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander and non-Indigenous. We all need to take part. It's time to decolonise. Time to unsettle the settler. Time for our internal revolution. I'm Jaja, or Radri woman living on First Nations sacred lands. And I'm here to yarn with our mob who want to talk up about decolonise. In our fourth episode, we're yarning with Bo Spiram, a proud Gamilaroi and Kuma brother, on a deep journey through his work as a broadcaster and the voice behind the frontier war stories, revealing the truth of the traumas that are still living out on our lands. That's what Maury was all about. It was about guts, facing the question and thinking about a new lifestyle and what might be and not what has been or what is. Yama, um, Bo Spiram, uh, and Skuthop, Kumori Kuma Marawari. Uh, dad's from Moree, uh, mum's from Brewarina. Um, so dad's Gimilaroi, mum is Kuma and Marawari. Uh, both of them were born on missions or reserves um, in a time when they were both uh, not classed as human beings. You know, and obviously Moree is um, famous due to the swimming pool and the freedom rides. Thanks, brother. A lot of things we can yarn about today and what you're up to, um, but also the freedom rides. You know, like, just for people out there listening, do you want to give a little spin on Definitely. what Charlie Perkins did for our, our mob? Definitely. I'll, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, so essentially the, the freedom rides here in Australia were um, sort of a mirror to the freedom rides uh, in the south of America where it was a bunch of university students, black and white, um, who were against segregation. And essentially what they were doing was driving into segregated towns in the south of America uh, to sort of desegregate schools, shopping centers, um, uh, restaurants and sort of other establishments like that. Um, And for the most part, they were met with violence. And uh, the the Freedom Rides was a part of a, a non-violent direct action movement where anything that ever happened to them, they wouldn't re- uh, resist with violence. Aranda man Dr Charles Perkins, also known as Uncle Charlie Perkins, born in Mbwanta, Alice Springs, led the Freedom Rides in 1965, prior to First Nations people being recognised as human. A fearless believer in our deep humanity, Uncle Charlie and University of Sydney students hired a bus and drove in solidarity through towns across regional New South Wales. 
bringing exposure to the racism and appalling living conditions for our mob. The only good right is the dead man. We want our tourists to and we don't want to hand it over to the black And as far as I'm concerned, run the lot and clean out his swim pool. What, all the Aborigines? Everyone. The whole freedom ride is not so much for the white On my mind, my, my deeper objective was for Aboriginal people to realise, hey, listen, second class is not good enough, you know? You don't have to always be first class, but don't always be second class. And don't cop shit, you know, when you don't have to. And you don't have to live on river banks and in shanty huts and at the end of a road where there's rubbish tip. Live in town. And you don't have to have cop these white men sneaking around pinching Aboriginal women at night, you know? Sitting down the front of picture theatres, not being able to sit in a restaurant with nobody allowed you as an Aboriginal sit in a restaurant. That's, that's not on. And, you know, and the timing was right. If I didn't do it, somebody else would have done it and other people have done it in a different way. Be that change, fight to see this culture remain. Uncle Charlie, Uncle Chica, fall through all of that pain. You see, our classrooms are empty, our jails are full. My cousin caught 10 years where yours graduated school. It's a pity. It's it's sad because racism is, you know, it's, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a parent now, and one thing I don't want is, you know, one thing I have to do, and one thing, you know, all Aboriginal parents have to do is prepare their kids for racism, which which is quite sad. It's a, it's a daunting reality that we that we have to sort of live in, uh, where if they're going to a school where they're the minority, at some point in their life, they're gonna realise that they're different, and you know, like that just that's gonna break my heart that my my son or my daughter, who's the oldest, and she's the most kindest person ever. You know what I mean? Like when she's at the park, she'll just go, "Hey, friend, do you want to play with me?" I always, when I interview black parents, I always ask them how, you know, is it all right for me to ask them how they prepare their kids or, or do they just sort of wait and say to their kids that you are different and the only reason why you're different is because you're Aboriginal or, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stark reality to live in when, when you're made to realise that you are different. And actually um, our sister Barker talks about this too in the the last episode of Decolonise, and it's, yeah, it's really sad reality. And you know, in a bizarre sort of way, I want to circle back, like everything we're talking about is here and now and stems from the podcast that you do that I just would like, you know, to touch on as well because this is like the modern day happening, like genocide's still happening, racism's still so strong. And do you want to tell us a bit about the podcast that you're sure, doing? Sure, And I guess just on that, before we get that, you know what I mean, people think the colonial invasion of Australia um, happened in 1788 and finished once Australia was sort of set up and, you know, federated or whatever. But what people tend to forget or don't know is colonialism is a forever thing evolving thing, you know what I mean? Um, there's not one part of this country that hasn't been affected by uh, British colonial uh, violence. You know, the institutions that we have grown to love and hate, you know, are institutions that have been set up in a way to perpetuate colonial stereotypes and violence against Aboriginal people. The police force, the the health system, the education system, 
um, the, of course, the media sort of system as well. You know, these are systems that were enforced on our people at a time when Charles Darwin deemed Aboriginal people to be the lowest sort of, you know, on the of the low on sort of the human sort of scale, you know. Um, Which is just like when you look at the knowledge of our people, it's just like it's, it's insanity, you know. We're the oldest, oldest culture and the knowledge is just phenomenal. You're listening up to Decolonise, a podcast about black sovereignty. And we're yarning with Bo Spiro, the voice behind the Frontier War Stories podcast. 1788 fired up. And for the next 140 years of settlement in so-called Australia, our people battled to defend our land as massacres raged to expand the British colony. And, and yeah, some of the things that I learned in my podcast about this period so for anybody listening, uh, Frontier War Stories is the podcast I do, and it's, it, it explores and looks at the first 140 years of conflict and resistance between Aboriginal people and whitefellas. And what I do is I speak to historians, uh, researchers, oral history keepers about the truth of this country, and especially the truth that has been left out of the history books. The people who I talk to, like these researchers in particular, they have looked in the journals of Captain Cook and looked in the journals of Flinders and Tyndale and looked in the journals of these military, these soldiers or these lieutenants or these captains who are named after, who are towns or um, bridges and statues are sort of made of, you know, these these horrible people who committed these horrible acts on our people. Like, these researchers have trolled through essentially their lives looking at uh, what they had committed. And these are celebrated people. Uh, the bridges that we cross, the streets that we live on, the parks that our kids play in, you know, uh, the statues that we walk past every day are a constant reminder of this colonial violence that has happened um, in Australia towards our people. Um, and, that, and, and that's the reason why we can't get over colonial violence, because we're constantly reminded. Absolutely. I was at, just gave a presentation yesterday where I said, you know, I was there saying, oh, my... My grandmother's countries were Radri, and I said, you know, from central New South Wales. And as I said it, I went, look at our states, Queensland, Victoria, New South Wales. We're still living, like you say, under this total colonial violence. Definitely. You know, it's hard to get over these things when they're constantly in our faces. But through the podcast, I've learnt how uh, in Queensland alone, uh, from the recent studies uh, by Lindley Wallace, who is uh, an archaeologist uh, and associate professor. And what her work has looked at is uh, the Queensland Native Mounted Police and how over a 50-year period, uh, the death toll of Aboriginal people has been has been 100,000 from the mid to late 1800s, 1850s to around 1904. And these uh, Native Mounted Police operated in most parts of Queensland. In certain areas, they were set up for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years and decades. The last Native Mount of Police camp was, I believe, it was in far north Queensland, and it might have been set up till the 50s or the 60s. And it was, it was named that as well, Native Mount of Police. And they participated in some of the most horrendous uh, things that happened to Aboriginal people. In most parts of Australia, there were Native Mounted Police camps. Um, Western Australia, 
they had native officers, like offsiders, um, and they they just had one person with them, and that individual had to be a crack shot with a gun, good at horse, horsemanship, um, and obviously knew the land as well. Um, and I think, and I could be wrong, maybe that's what Jendamara was uh, in his earlier days, uh, before he got sick and tired of the treatment of his people and, you know, and then became as known as the, the, the Bonobar warrior as he is today, which is an, an excellent and amazing story in which I do urge people to check out as well. Jendamara was one of our many warriors that held resistance during the frontier wars. A Bonobar man from what became known as the Kimberley. He led one of the most effective rebellions in our history of resistance to colonisation. Jandamara grew up on a station from a young age and felt an outcast in his community and eventually exiled for breaking kinship law. Wandering lost and hurt, he befriended English police officer Richards and helped him track and arrest Bunaba men. Jandamara watched the punishment executed on these men now shackled in heavy neck chains, flogged and starved of food for seven days. This changed him forever. He took his gun and murdered Richardson, freeing his people, declaring war. He was just 17 and led the Bunaba uprise of guerrilla warfare from 1885. Yeah, so the, you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed people about the use of chains in Western Australia. Um, how they would, you know, incarcerate ten-year-olds back then as well, and chain them up in horrendous chains and uh, uh, from neck to, to wrist to ankles. Looked at one another interesting thing that I found out is that Aboriginal people were a part of this convict system, uh, and what happened was uh, as early as you know, the, as as early as the 1908 with frontier conflict. Aboriginal people were, were locked up in the penal colonies throughout Australia. So obviously the ones, uh, Cockatoo and Goat Islands, Van Diemen's Land, what Tassie used to be known as, Norfolk Island, Rottnest Island. So any penal colony around Australia, Aboriginal people were incarcerated in them for participating in frontier wars. But also another interesting thing was other Indigenous people from around uh, the world who were part of the British colony. So Australia was, I think the words gazetted as an outpost you could say, for other Indigenous men. Um, and so there's, there, there's uh, unmarked, uh, like the sort of unmarked graves of these Indigenous men, you know, um, and that's one of the episodes that I did, that I did on with um, Christy Harmon, who is, she's New Zealand, but she's based in Tassie. She's a professor in Aboriginal studies at the uni, uni down there. And she moved to Australia and she wanted to check out the islands off of Tassie. So she did that. And then she got to this one sort of rock formation, sort of statue thing, and she spotted that it, it had, you know, like this Māori name. So she's done her own research. She's like, oh, whoa. You know, she found out that, you know, there's a whole bunch of Māori men were brought over here for participating in the Māori wars. And then she goes, oh, wow, if they're doing this to, to, to Māori men, what are they doing to Aboriginal people? So she just yeah, has done this amazing history. Through her studies, actually, um, she found out that in 1850, there was an investigation into why Aboriginal people were dying in custody. And this is like 170 years before the Royal Commission, or maybe 150, whatever it was, you know what I mean? Like, so that in the 1850s, 
investigators investigating why Aboriginal people are dying in custody. Um, and, and, you know, mob were being brought in, you know, busted up, you know, bullet wounds, uh, being, being beat up, um, and they were dying within weeks. Um, and it's just baffled these European people at the time and, you know, to the point where they said, don't lock, just don't lock an Aboriginal person up unless it's, it's, it, they, they, they need to be locked up. Um, other than that, don't worry about bringing them in because they're just coming in here and they're dying at a high rate. You know, obviously due to the food, uh, the foreign sicknesses, uh, the conditions in these prisons as well. You know, I've interviewed Mob about massacres as well. Um, originally when I started the podcast, I didn't want to focus on massacres. One, because we know those histories as Aboriginal people. And two, is because there's quite a bit of information out there on them. But as I sort of spoke to other guests and other people, I kind of realised that, wait a minute, I have to tell these stories because they're as a result of resistance and the resistance is as a result of these massacres and they're a story that needs to be told together. You know, and then I think, like, if I was doing that, then I would do a disservice to our mob and, like, I feel like I can't pick and choose what I'm telling as well uh, because... It's because it's all one story, essentially, you know what I mean? And, and people need to hear it. And I think what you've just said then is, is the truth telling. Do you know, like, I think this is where the healing, this is, this is the only way it's going to happen, you know, not, like not just for us, but like for our land, for our country, for even for non-Indigenous people. I think, you know, like a lot of people, we know that it's in the past, get over it, but it's actually the truth telling and the story being acknowledged that's actually part of how I see decolonise. Definitely, you know, uh, truth-telling is the start of, of many things that could happen. You know, the, the possibilities are endless once we sort of begin on that track. You know, South Africa has gone through this sort of truth and reconciliation period uh, when Mandela got in. I know in Canada, Indigenous mob are going through this truth and reconciliation period as well over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, me personally, um, I've never been for constitutional recognition or any of that. I've always advocated against that approach. One, because I think there's other important things that need to be spoken about. And, and, and when I did, I didn't really know the answer to that, um, honestly. And, and now I do know what the answer is, and it, it's truth-telling. And truth-telling needs to become before it needs to happen before anything, any discussion. You know, and then once we become informed as much as we can, then I think we can make a valid decision on what it is we actually want or how we want to sort of get to that message as well. And, and, and you know, like, I respect blackfellas and, and sort of their journey and, and what they want to push and, and where they want to go. Um, but I believe that, you know, like a referendum especially that is involving whitefellas that don't care or don't know about our history is never ever going to end good for us. And... I believe, you know, and, and this is always funny, I always try and break the numbers down on what it would look like, you know, in terms of if there was a referendum, then be obviously the, 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 the white followers who are against it, who are racist, they'll, they'll, they'll be voting no. Um, you know, if it, and then there'll be sort of the, the sympathetic white followers with, with empathy who want to sort of change and then they'll be voting yes. You know, and then obviously there'll be the mob, Aboriginal people who, who, who feel that this is something that we do need, 
that'll vote yes, and then there'll be a proportion of Aboriginal people who'll vote no because this is this is what what we don't want. Um, it's it's an interesting thing it is because um, I believe you know once we sort of move on this sort of discussion of truth, um, then we can sort of look at what we're doing now currently as. You know, or, or, you know, I'm going to refrain that what white people are doing currently or what the broader society is doing currently as well once we have this process of truth-telling because then possibly they could examine uh, their, not just their... their if, if they've been here for generations, their their generational legacy, but then also we can look at sort of what is happening now in contemporary and, and sort of flip that and change that as well. Um, since I've been doing this podcast, I've been more for truth-telling than anything else. And I, th I think truth-telling is where the basis for sovereignty, I think, from everything you're saying there. For sure, you know, like, like we have our sovereignty and, you know, nothing's going to take that away, you know, um, nothing or nobody, because it, it, it's inherent to, to who we are as individuals, you know, because we have that truth that sort of strives to push us individually to, to better our lives for ourselves, our children, our family. You know, then we're part of a community that where we know what is happening and what is going on in our community, um, and and we know collectively that uh, we may be in sort of different silos of what is happening in our community, but you know each silo is sort of pushing for something that needs to be changed, and it has always been coming from a standpoint of of truth telling, and then like you know collectively as Aboriginal people around the country. There's, like, like, we know what we want. You know, we, we know eventually that, you know, mob want treaty. You know, we, we know eventually mob, you know, um, either want or don't want constitutional recognition. Um, what we don't know is sort of the truth to sort of aim us in a direction to come up with a conclusion to say, well, what is first? And, and, and let's have this yarn first. Yeah. Deadly, thanks, brother. Thank you for your truth telling. You've been listening up to Decolonize, a podcast about black sovereignty. Epic thanks to Brother Bo Spiron for his heart and knowledge. Listen up to Frontier War Stories podcast on your favourite platform and explore this journey of truth-telling. This episode of Decolonize was recorded on Bunjalung and produced on Ghana. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to elders past, present, emerging and to my grandmother, Martha Hamlin. Special thanks to the Perkins fam and the National Film and Sound Archive for the use of the audio segment from NFSA's Australian biography series, Charles Perkins. Music by Kobe D, Standing Still. For full credits and info, head to decolonise.com.au or follow us on Insta.